What happens when the unthinkable happens to you? My name is Elaine Smokler, and I'm here in conversation with Dr. Patricia Rockman, co-founder and director of education and clinical services for the Center for Mindfulness Studies. Pat and I have been friends for decades, and we were both training as clowns when Pat did as her clown piece, a show called From Birth to Death, It's Clown Burlesque. It was a life cycle show where the clown eventually began to, as it started off, growing and then eventually began to lose body parts bit by bit as it went through the life cycle. Neither Pat or I knew at the time that this was going to be prescient for future experiences. Pat is here generously willing to talk about her experience with breast cancer and some of her insights about having gone through that process. Hi, Pat. Thanks for coming to talk with us today. Hi, Elaine. So I would love to know, what do you recall about your first moments after hearing your diagnosis of cancer? Well, I already had a pretty good idea that I had breast cancer because I'd had some symptoms that made me suspicious. But getting the actual diagnosis from... Do you want to tell us what those symptoms were, just since you mentioned them? Like what? Um, mostly nipple crusting, um, which you can get when you do long runs, and I'd had before, but this was persistent, so I was suspicious. So the diagnosis came on the phone from the uh, pathologist, and I really wasn't surprised, and at first didn't feel anything at all, and it wasn't until I called my husband and spoke to him that I got really upset about it and we were both crying on the phone so that mm. was really my initial reaction. Mm, very powerful. And you and your husband are physicians is that correct? Yeah. So was there anything different do you feel you've spent many time a lot of time with people who've also gone through cancer but who were your patients what was that like for you and your husband being on the other side of it? Well, there are some good things about being on the other side of it from the standpoint that I understand the system and I have a pretty good idea of how to make the medical system work best for me. On the other hand... And do you have any tips for us when you say that? I mean, that's an interesting idea. Like what? Make sure that you ask a lot of questions, that you understand what's going to happen in terms of the process. I think when people are more informed, they tend to do better. Also, investigate if you're able to, the research associated with the treatment that you're having. And if you feel the need to get a second opinion about what's being suggested. Those are the main things. And then if you have to have surgery, uh, make try to do your best to make sure that the surgeon is a good surgeon and this is not so easy to find out hmm. it's a lot easier to find out when you work in the healthcare profession because invariably you will know somebody who knows somebody who works in an OR in an operating room and this is what's needed in order to really assess a surgeon's skill because regardless of what people say about somebody it's only when you see what they're doing in that situation where you can really determine how good they are at their job. Right. And I mean, what's interesting about that is that 
you may none of us may or not may may or may not ever know the truth about that but at least you had the understanding that you could ask those questions and do some investigation and i appreciate you mentioning it because it's actually something that anybody could attempt to do certainly any of us are in position to ask questions and potentially depending on your scenario even change doctors if you're not comfortable with the emotional support you're receiving from your doctor because it's a long journey and it's good to know that you're with the person who you feel you can talk to and connect with. Would you say that's? Um, somewhat. I think that with respect to something like breast cancer where there may be a variety of treatments that you have to go through, not all breast cancers are treated in the same way, but you know, with something like chemotherapy or radiation, there's a protocol. But when you're working with a surgeon, not all surgeons are created equal. So you may think somebody has a really good reputation as a surgeon and they could be really bad. So it's worth trying to find that out. As far as the emotional connection goes, I think for me, working with the oncologist who provided the chemotherapy and was really the person who was at the head of the treatment team having a connection with her was really helpful, really valuable. I wouldn't say it's so important with a surgeon. What I really care about in a surgeon is that they're excellent with the knife. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. But this does make me curious about the, the uh, alongside your experiences going through the physical components of being experiencing cancer was the fact that you're also a teacher, a writer, um, you're the, you know, the co-founder of the Center for Mindfulness Studies. So I'd like to know how did mindfulness factor in? How quickly did it come in? You talked about that first emotional experience mm -hmm. with your husband. So what was the end then? What happened? So I think one way to look at this is to see that change happens in an instant. Every change happens in an instant. It tends not to be slow, like the birth of a baby, you get married, you lose a job, you lose a spouse. These things happen quickly. It's a psychological transition that takes time. And I think mindfulness can help us with that because unless you're incredibly evolved, we're always going to react to what life brings us. It's really what you do next after that initial reaction, how might we respond skillfully or in a more healthy way? So, And I think this is a really key point because I think for people who are just coming to mindfulness, maybe particularly they've received a diagnosis of cancer, their doctor said you should check out mindfulness, perhaps they think, oh, mindfulness is going to solve all my problems. And I really appreciate that you're saying we're still human beings, we're going to have thoughts and feelings. They're not always going to be peaceful. No. And in fact, for me, mindfulness has been most helpful in managing the difficulties of life. I mean, I often jokingly refer to myself as the queen of misery because I treat people with mental health problems who have depression and anxiety and people don't come and see me because they're happy, right? Uh, so I really see my role as uh, helping people to be able to manage difficult emotional and physical states in healthier ways. And mindfulness can help us to be less immersed and overwhelmed by difficulty and be able to get a bit of space so that we can have choice about how we respond 
to what life throws at us. So in this way, for me, with the breast cancer experience, the change comes quickly. You immediately are pitched into the role of a patient. You're identified as sick, even if you don't feel sick. And treatment happens really fast with breast cancer. So there isn't a lot of time to contemplate, to think about, to adapt to the changing role. You're kind of doing it all on the fly. And I recognize in retrospect that there were certain decisions that I made from a reactive state, although I didn't even necessarily even really know it initially. So I ended up treating many decisions like they were urgent when in fact they were not. The only urgency is to start your treatment as quickly as possible, whether that be chemo, whether that's radiation, or whether that's surgery. All the rest can wait. So so part of the mindfulness is the mindful awareness of how of our fight, flight, freeze response, almost of how quickly we want to get out of threat and how fast we might try to move away rather than giving ourselves the time and space. Is that what you're saying? To let it unfold a bit? Yeah. So mindfulness can help us to know when we need to do something and when we don't. It can help us to see when we're being driven by our emotional reactions and actually want to get away from the discomfort that comes with those versus when it's actually necessary that we do something. So I'd like to investigate this a bit further. You used the word choice and there were some choice points in in very kind of ordinary ways along the way that I would love you to talk about. For instance, some of the choices you had to make when your hair started to fall out. Right. So, you know, it's pretty much the norm, not everyone, but it is not uncommon that people will buy a wig when they lose their hair from chemo. Why is that? You know, I mean, I didn't even think about that initially. The healthcare provider I was seeing told me I should go and buy a wig and gave me some places to go check out. And I just dutifully went along and did that. And it wasn't until I was really into that process that I started to really think about like, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? This is incredibly unpleasant. The wig place is not able to match my hair. This is an agonizing process. I have to keep going back to this store when I'm feeling weak and vulnerable and sick. And ultimately, they weren't able to do what they said they could do. And it was a bad decision to jump into that. There was no reason not to wait until my hair all fell out and see Oh, how is this being bald, you know? Can we bring beginner's mind to baldness from chemo? And in fact, ultimately, I chose not to buy a wig and had my head hennaed with um, a henna crown. And it was beautiful, you know? And motorcycle guys would stop me on the street and say how cool that tattoo was. Of course, it wasn't really a permanent tattoo, but that being said... It was lovely and being bald, I loved it. It was great. So when I think about how if you open up Mindful Magazine or you go to any website and look at mindfulness, there's so many different mindfulness practices. A lot of them are kind of have a similar flavor, but I feel you're opening a whole door up here to a whole, a different kind of mindfulness practice that might come with mindfully deciding 
whether you really need to have a wig in order to be socially acceptable because you're losing your hair during cancer. Because I, having gone with you during some of those wig processes, I noticed that there were many thoughts and ideas that came up around acceptability. Why do you need to have hair? Uh, what does that mean? And it was also powerful to notice what hair says about us. So the wig people believed the fact that they could give you something that covered your head, that had a hairy quality to it, was good enough. But as we looked in the mirror and saw the reflection back that didn't look anything like the funky pat that was in the world, what was the point of having a wig? And I felt that that really started to springboard the practice of noticing more deeply whose voice is it that's calling us to do these things. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a cultural norm for women to have hair, for the most part, unless you're, you know, a punk rocker or something. And uh, hair is symbolic of many things, of beauty, of health. And wearing a wig, when you stop and think about it, is all about passing for being healthy, for being well, for not revealing that you're sick, that it's bad to be sick. Just like the cultural message is it's bad to be old, you know? Uh, we hide these vulnerabilities away and it was really liberating to let go of that and also, also to make the decision to tell people. I remember when I was talking to my husband about it and one of the things that came up was, oh, am I gonna tell people that I have cancer? And he said, well, they're gonna know because your hair is gonna fall out, which was pretty funny. And it made me stop and think, well, why not let people know we're all gonna get sick at some point or we're all gonna be exposed to people who are sick and we don't get a lot of training in how to manage catastrophic illness or to help others who are going through serious illness and it became a way of normalizing that this is what happens to us and accepting that this is what's here versus trying to avoid it and for me that's a big part of mindfulness as well beautiful and you had other choice points that also showed up when you realized that you had to make some decisions about whether to have a prosthetic or not to have a prosthetic and could you tell us a little bit about your decision making and how you went about some of the events that came up around that well again I think that when we are pitched into these situations that are completely unfamiliar that are new unknown the outcome is unknown we really try to control what's going on which doesn't always work and so one of the things that was on the table was whether or not I was going to have a breast reconstruction or implants or nothing except a mastectomy, right? And I initially thought I might go with nothing and had these imaginings of being an Amazon, you know, the single-breasted Amazons who would cut cut their breast off so that they could shoot their arrows more effectively. And a yeah, nice thought, except that I'm not an Amazon and I don't have an arrow. And I 
also thought about that from a political perspective and ultimately made the decision to have reconstruction, but this took a little while. And I really was not in my right mind and was on the subway one day and saw this woman on the subway and looked at her. She was wearing an Indian shirt and I re realized she only had one breast, which is something I would never have noticed if I wasn't thinking about having a mastectomy. So I went up to her and asked her if she'd talk to me because I realized she only had one breast, which is a pretty strange thing to do with a stranger, but she was extremely welcoming and she was a nurse, a wellness specialist. And so we had a lovely conversation about this as a choice. And so I ultimately decided that I was not going to go breastless. But in the meantime, in the middle of all that, I ended up going to a store that sells breast prostheses with my daughter. And before I even knew what I was doing, I spent $500 on this thing, which as a reminder to my reactivity now sits in my dresser drawer. So this is again what you're saying earlier about letting yourself have a few breaths to make decisions without feeling you have to make a decision right away. Yeah. Or, right. Yeah, like our anxiety, our reactivity makes us act quickly because I think what we want is to get away from the discomfort of the emotion, not because we actually have to do something. There was no urgency to go buy a silicone breast. It wasn't necessary. I could have waited. I could have waited a long time. Now, there's something about the story of you going up to that woman on the subway that I also found really uh, tender and interesting because it speaks to actually a really beautiful side of the cancer story, which is the ability to begin to relate to the world in a new way from, dare I almost call it a community standpoint. I was in a, I feel, privileged position to be on your care team and help organize people to bring you food, for example. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that I had to go and find people. It was more I needed to help organize all of the people who wanted to help and they just needed somebody to coordinate it so they didn't all fall over each other to do so. And I found it really interesting to notice how, um, you know, we talk about mindfulness uh, and it, it made me curious about what mindfulness as a community experience is really it really it really opened up a new window for me about that notion mm -hmm. so when we get sick we think it's only happening to us but every big change in our life is also happening to those who are close to us to those who we love and who care for us and this is something that I don't think is easy for us particularly in Western culture to see and I think you're right that there is something that is a real gift to both the person who is sick and to those who would offer care that comes about when we're open to our need and our, our vulnerability and our wish for help. Others actually don't see it as a burden. I think there's a tendency for people to be really private and to hide these things as I was talking about with the wig, you know? And in fact, I know people who've had cancer and they didn't tell anyone. They went through the whole thing really on their own or with one other person. And, you know, the cancer experience, breast or otherwise, is exhausting. The treatment is brutal. It goes on and on and on. 
one's life becomes a series of appointments and visits to doctors and other healthcare professionals and people wanting information from you and you wanting information from them and friends and family wanting to know what's happening and it it really can take over your whole life and I think behaving as if you actually are an island is really a mistake and I think you're pointing to how making the cancer experience a community experience is really the next step in one's mindfulness journey where we are moving from individual knowledge about our personal experience, our sense of self, to enhancing our compassion for others. Well, before we uh, started our, our conversation on tape, we were having a conversation about how, for many, mindfulness is viewed as an individualistic journey. And you had some really interesting insights about that from being on the inside of what it was to be at the center of a very loving and active community who were really, um, who greatly benefited by being able to participate and come to the hospital with you and bring you food. Can you speak to that a bit? Well, I think it's a relief, both to the person with the illness and to those who are close to be able to be of service and to be of assistance in what often is a situation where people feel helpless. And, you know, there's literature to support the idea that, well, first of all, as health increases, self-concern decreases and concern for others increases. And also that those people who are of service to others are happier than those who are not. So in a really kind of almost interesting way, illness can provide anybody who we might consider our community a beautiful opportunity to awaken to something tender in themselves and to really get to the heart of what mindfulness really is. Mindfulness is not a way to make a better us, but a way to bring awareness to how we are all here together, breathing together. And I think sometimes when we're all well, it's easier to forget that when we're just trucking along. And sometimes when one of us gets stopped, especially if it's somebody we care about, it allows us to go, oh, right, we are all in this together and we want to be in this together. Yeah. So, you know, if we can bring not just awareness, but curiosity and compassion to our experience, whatever it is, and then this situation and in other situations, compassion is defined as wanting to be uh, of assistance to others, to be with their suffering and to be of assistance. And if we can bring those two qualities of curiosity and compassion to our practice, I think it takes us so much further than when we're just focused on our sense of self. Mm -hmm. That <clears throat> makes me curious about any if there were any aha moments for you along the way as you mingled your experience of being a human being on a cancer journey with that label called cancer, co-mingled with your experience of many years as a mindful practitioner and teacher, I'd love to know even more um, how those things started to reveal themselves. Well, I think when you have 
a serious illness, it's really easy to start to have your thinking be pitched into the future about some nightmare that you may be heading toward. So one of the things that I think the practice helped me do was to be able to recognize when that was happening and pull my thoughts back from that to the experience of body, of the body breathing, of sensation, of waking up to the fact that that's where my thoughts had gone and therefore have a choice about, do is this really what I want to think about? Or do I want to just check in with what's here right now, whatever that is, and move off of that kind of thinking, which you could argue is a problem-solving strategy, but it's not particularly effective, particularly when it's really a kind of bad fantasy. And then the other thing is that I found it really hard to sit with any consistent regularity and length of time. When you say sit, you mean like practice meditation on a cushion? Yeah, kind of thing? in a formal way. So very brief practices were helpful for checking in regularly with, oh, what's here right now and thinking, what's here in emotions, what's here in the body, what am I experiencing right now? Oh, fatigue is here, okay, and then being able to make a conscious decision that, okay, maybe you need to rest now, or maybe impatience is here, or anxiety is here, and then being able to recognize what was going on, so this is the awareness piece you're talking about, but then being able to really then make an intentional decision about what to do next from a place of um, a place where there was a bit of space, a bit of perspective taking. Right. We we often uh, will talk about practices like the stop practice, little pithy practices that are there to remind us to stop in difficult moments, take a breath and begin to notice what is here right now, what thoughts are showing up, what feel, what physical sensations, uh, what thoughts are here. And I, and then, and then the P of the stop practice is then potentially, once we are really able to be present to what's showing up, we're able to proceed with a bit more wisdom. And I, I find it notable that, you know, even though you've been practice practitioner for many, many years and you and not, you know, we've taught many thousands of people, we see that sometimes people come to mindfulness with this idea that if they practice, they're not going to have difficult emotions they're not they're going to be calm and i feel that one of the interesting things you and i have discovered is of course we're still human beings we're going to have strong emotional experiences but potentially the mindfulness gives us a way to be able to hold and frame those experiences without it pulling us down the rabbit hole for an extended period of time so it really speaks to resilience is that something that you would say you related to in yeah and recovery quick recovery from those reactions so yeah like i agree that i think if one expects one isn't going to have difficult emotions good luck with that (laughs) and really again that's what you do when they show up that matters how do you treat yourself? How do you treat other people? What do you do next? Is it helpful or is it harmful? Beautiful. So whether we're sick or whether we're well, we find that awareness is still the same 
uh, companion where we're trying to understand, and now what? And how can I be with this? And how can I be with this? Ah, cancer is here. Ah, pain is here. Ah, chemo is here. Ah, throwing up is here. Right. And, you know, being with you and just watching you uh, show grace under vomiting. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Um, you know, I think that uh, what you're also speaking to is the tendency to want to avoid difficulty, to want to turn away from it uh, in an effort to escape. And in fact, when you have something like a cancer diagnosis, escape really is not possible. Uh, it is possible in the short term, but if you don't deal with it and manage it, it will take over your life. And usually ultimately have a bad outcome. So it behooves us to turn toward that which we don't like or that we're afraid of or that we would rather not face and find a way to build our tolerance and our resilience as you were pointing to. So do you have tips that have come from this experience for others who may find themselves also going through this uh, journey either themselves or with others who are going through the journey of cancer? Yeah, I would say reflect on what actions are really essential and what can wait. Make sure that you have a support system if you're able to tell people and talk about it. I think this helps everyone to normalize what comes for all of us sooner or later as some sort of illness. Enlist people's help. Really think about what self-care means like give me some examples of what self-care meant for you it meant continuing to exercise while i could because women who do aerobic exercise have better outcomes than those who don't not drinking alcohol because reducing because it increases recurrence and it increases the risk of breast cancer significantly in all women um Getting massage was important after post-surgery, having physio. Why was the massage important? Because there's a lot of pain or because there are various muscular and other problems that can come from the surgery. Um, also, you know, go to bed when you need to. For me, it was important to also continue to do some work because I really was aware that I didn't want my whole identity taken up with this. Now your your children were adults when you got your diagnosis. Yeah. But I'd love to know if you had any tips for how to talk to family members when you discover this diagnosis. Tell the truth. I think it's not my job to rescue others from my illness nor is it other people's jobs to rescue the other people in their lives from their illnesses. I don't think we do people a service by not exposing them to life difficulties. So my children were very aware of what was going on and they were incredibly helpful, particularly my daughter. It was, I think, in some ways hardest for her because she was the most present throughout the whole process and she's young she 
she was uh, 22 at the time and was really remarkable. I think it changed our relationship and it shifted it where I'm still her mother, but she really learned what it meant to look after others and to be compassionate and to at times feel the burden of that and at times have to cope with the emotional reactions that come from the unknown. But I think, you know, it was good for her to be part of that and to know about it. Now, there was another family member who played a really interesting role in your journey. Mm. And I'd love you to talk about that, especially because, as you said, it's so easy when you're the one with the diagnosis of cancer to have the view of yourself, um, you know, you're weak and everybody needs to take care of you. And yet you did something during your diagnosis. I'd like you to talk about that relates to one of your family members. Oh, so this is great because you're giving me the opportunity to talk about my BFF, my grandson, who he was, uh, I guess he was, oh my God, he's almost five now. So he was not even two at the time. And I was looking after him one day a week before I got the diagnosis. And I continued to look after him one day a week through the whole treatment. Even though people said to you, you shouldn't be looking after your, you should be resting. Yeah, that's what they said. But what I did was I still looked after him and then I'd get people to come and help me look after him. (laughs) But he was a delight and a great support unbeknownst to him. And he, he made it just so much more possible. You know, there were some times when he had to come to the hospital and there were some times when I would take him to his singing classes and I'd be really weak and couldn't lift him and all of that. But so how was was, he, how was he a great support? Because he's really open and present. And when you're with a little kid, you have to be present. You can't really be doing other things you know so when we're baking we're baking when we're playing we're playing and was it interesting for you at all that he wasn't aware that nana had cancer like everyone else in your life was aware but was he aware yeah yeah he knew oh he was yeah, oh, yeah that's he interesting knew. did what did that mean to him I don't really know what it meant to him. I mean, as he, because he was involved in it, you know, for the whole process was a year and a half. So he wasn't speaking that much in the beginning, but he, he would ask me questions about, you know, why I would have the scar I had and, you know, why I had to have a new breast. I mean, he's, there's no question that he's heterosexual. That kid likes breasts. He was <laughs> Okay, that's another topic. Another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> you know, but cuz so he noticed because he was, you know, still nursing for quite a while with his mom. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> so, it's lovely cuz one of the things that I think you're speaking to, again, we started this podcast, we talked about role, like the we're talking about notice of role and the ability that even in a situation like this to let the role move around a little bit so that we don't get trapped just like we talk about in mindfulness. You don't want to get trapped in one view. What happens when your view is all about cancer victim, cancer victim, cancer victim, instead of realizing that, yes, absolutely, I have a lot of things that I have to deal with, but that's only, it's only one component of who I am. I'm me with cancer. And I feel that one of the things that I experienced with uh, 
with him and you was just that it was fun to see that you were still grandma and you were still able to go and play in the park and do things with him rather than saying, oh no, that part of my life is over. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, so it would be wonderful to know, you know, you went through this experience and how are you now? I'm good now. One of the things I did when I was in the middle of treatment, oh, this was an act of self-care, a bourgeois act of self-care, was I've always wanted to be on water. And so when I was in the middle of treatment, I didn't really know how it was gonna go. I told my husband that I wanna be on water and I wanna do it now. So if I'm gonna get sick and die, I wanna be on water. And if I'm not gonna get sick and die, I wanna be on water. So we ended up buying a small cottage on leased First Nations land on water. And that was a real act of self-care. And it was really, in many ways, a unilateral decision. Of course, he had to sign the papers as well for the transaction. But what was he going to say? No, you can't do this. So, you Well, know, it's the old framing it, if I'm going to sick and die. If I'm going to get sick and die, I dare you to trump that. Right. So <laughs> one could argue I was playing the cancer card. So it was all fine until he didn't die. And then he got mad about it. But... Um, We've overcome that now. So, how am I now? Like, I like go, first of all, diagnosis-wise, where are you at? Yeah, I'm well. I'm fine now. What uh, does that mean, well? Well, I don't have cancer at this point, as okay. far as I know. And I'm back to living my life, but really trying to, trying to take more space to do the things I want to do and to have time up on the water and have time away with my husband and my family and friends. And I noticed that you're also writing, obviously you're a professional writer, you do lots of writing about mindfulness, but you also have been writing about cancer and I believe mindful.org is going to be um, publishing some of your pieces about can about your experience going through cancer, which is wonderful because it'll give us a bit more of your, you know, it's it's hard to explain to a person who hasn't gone through cancer how there could be a humorous side, but I have maybe want to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've also been through it too, so, um, and you and I have. It being, I'm, I'm also somebody who's been through cancer. Yeah, and I mean, you and I have been able to bring humor to a lot of difficult situations, not to mention that. I mean, it's all well and good for us because we're well now as far as we know. Mm -hmm. So we can't really speak to what happens when it doesn't turn out that way, you know, because sooner or later we're all going to be palliative in one form. But I feel it's important and I mention it because, of course, when you've gone through it yourself, it's a little bit easier to be able to bring humor in. And since I had gone through cancer before Pat went through cancer, I did bring my own perspective of it and found that humor and a relative light touch was also very, very helpful when there are dark days when you really just feel kind of yucky. Mm -hmm. And to be able to have a sense of humor, even about that, not it's not glib, it is just a way to hold the whole situation with a little bit more lightness, knowing, as you said to me before, Pat, this too shall pass. Everything passes until eventually we do pass one way or the other. And so I feel that all of this gives us an opportunity to look at our lives. And for some of us, it can be really powerful to go through an experience like this because it can be a wake-up call to our precious lives and to 
what what's that line from the wild geese what will you do with your one wild and precious life yeah mary oliver it's one of my favorite lines and i think you're absolutely right i mean i think catastrophic illness can be approached with humor humor is definitely an ally and also taking the time to reflect on what will you do with your one wild and precious life because as far as we know we only get one so let's make it count Thank you so much, Pat. I really appreciate you taking your time from your busy schedule, and I'm so happy that you're well, and it's wonderful to talk to you about it. And thank you, Elaine, and I'm glad you're well. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Bye.